Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. On this episode, we're going way outside, as far as the mind can wonder. So many people are focused on trying to see what lies in outer space, but there's a handful of people that are thinking of other ways to figure this out. Ways to discover what's in outer space that don't depend on eyesight. By listening, by launching messages of hope, and by math. Lily's got some super cool bits of information to share on all this. During our visit to the planetarium in Montreal, I ask a question that's been bugging me for years on how do we know the shape of the Milky Way? And then Dave Brown and I talk about using GPS and other technologies to navigate off the grid. Come on, Lewis, let's go find Lily. Three, two, one. Did you know? Hello, Lily. Hey. What have you been turning your mind to recently? Uh, well, okay, so it turns out the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, otherwise known as SETI, has picked up an intelligence signal from deep in space. The thing is, um, it's our own Voyager 1 spacecraft, so it's not, a, it's not actually that cool. <laughs> well, you got my heart going there for a minute. I'm thinking, whoa. Okay, so tell us a little bit more about SETI and the Voyager. Yes, SETI stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. A few months back, the SETI Institute said its Allen Telescope Array in California had picked up signs of intelligence in space. So everyone was like freaking out. Oh, um, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> but the signals weren't from an alien intelligence, actually. They came from an earthly spacecraft, NASA's Voyager 1. The farthest human-made object from Earth. The Voyager 1 spacecraft is exploring where nothing from Earth has flown before, continuing on its more than 45-year journey since 1977 launch. Wow. It's 1977, 45 years the spacecraft's been flying away from Earth. It's much farther away from Earth and the Sun than Pluto. In August 2012, Voyager 1 made the historic entry into interstellar space, the region between stars filled with material ejected by death of nearby stars millions of years ago. Wow. Yeah. Another interesting little, you know, thing about the Voyager is what it's carrying. A gold CD was produced with sounds and images from Earth, including traditional indigenous music and more, like, current rock classics nice yeah so the idea being that if when aliens discovered the voyager they will have records about the life form that launched the spacecraft isn't that cool eh? i mean here we are just you know wishing uh, that someone might find the spacecraft as it journeys away from earth and then they'll know us something about us voyager one is now about 23.4 billion kilometers from earth Along with its twin craft, Voyager 2, Voyager 1 is on a mission to explore the boundaries of the helisphere, the sphere of our sun's influence. Hard to imagine that something can last that long, eh? A piece of technology. Lily, what can you tell us about the Allen Telescope Array in California? Uh, The Allen Telescope Array, ATA, uh, is unique among earthly telescopes in that it's designed specifically to look for extraterrestrial intelligence. The telescope's array's name comes from donor Paul Allen and co-founder of Microsoft. (laughs) One person's wealth is responsible for this whole project. That's cool. You know, talk about doing something maybe useful with your money. I mean, not cleaning out the ocean, you know. No, it's advancing science. 
Yeah, I guess. And if he, and if it comes across that they actually find and hear, you know, outer that, alien life. That's would, not a good thing. It might be. Uh, the telescope is made up of 42 radio antennas located at Hat Creek Observatory in California's Cascade Mountains, about 300 miles north of San Francisco. Since 2019, the ATA has been undergoing upgrades. To test the success of the ATA's upgrades, scientists set about searching for intelligent life as we know it, Voyager 1. Mm. The Voyager 1's signature is fairly similar to what scientists are trying to search for when performing radio SETI science. Yeah, well, that makes sense. If they're able to pick up Voyager's carrier with the ATA, it's a real boost to their confidence that they can detect a similar artificial signal coming from somewhere with our galaxy. So how does it differ from other telescopes? The main thing is that cloudy skies aren't really a problem for the radio dishes in the Allen Telescope Array. They don't need to have a clear line of sight. Do you think they'll ever pick up uh, an alien signal? I mean, mm. you know, yeah, I know it's a little scary, but what do you think it would mean for the world in general? Uh, the ATA would be answering, you know, like the big question, are we alone? And I think, like, I mean, most scientists have said there's literally a 0.000 chance that we're alone. It <laughs> yeah. makes absolutely no sense that we would be alone. Yeah. So it, it's a question that, you know, humans have been pondering since, you know, we kind of kept looking up at the sky. Thanks so much for all this. And uh, hey, happy nah. birthday. I was born without a birthday, guys. How could you be born without it's a, not a birthday. birthday? It's not a birthday. Not a real birthday. The day you're born is your birthday. No, I don't have a birthday. <laughs> Well, you have one today. No, I don't. (laughs) Not a real birthday. Can you believe, like, when we started doing this podcast, you were 14. Now you're 17. No, because I don't have a birthday. Time is just, time isn't linear. It's circular. I don't advance. I like that idea. I'm sticking with that one, too. He just doesn't want people to know he's 60. Not 60. You're 59. Maybe I went into a holding pattern of 44. Oh, yeah. Sure. Arrested development. You can tell by the grays. <laughs> All right. We're stopping here. That's enough of that. Thanks, Lily. Outdoor Adventures. Lily, where are we? We're in the planetarium. So what's around us? So it's like we're in a huge dome, and the entire dome, like the ceiling, is the screen. Okay, and it's uh, the projector's in the middle of the room? Yeah, and all the seats are aligned in concentric circles around the projector. And we're the, uh, we're the fifth row back. We're, we're right at the back. We're but, the last row, yeah. But there's four rows in front of us, then the projector, and then the same on the other side, eh? Yeah. And the seats, I'm sort of reclined at about a 45-degree angle. Nice lumbar support, comfortable seats, headrests. You get your own armrest. Don't have to fight with your neighbor for an armrest. You know, we did about a three-hour tour today of the Biodome and the Insectarium. We had a great lunch, a cup of coffee, and uh, I'm hoping this is more than just a visual presentation. Otherwise, I'm going to have a nice nap now. But let's just see what happens. Hi. Hello. How are you? Hi. Hi. Hi.
back from how many stars we can see with the naked eye? I mean by that, the one we can count individually. Thousands of stars? More? Millions? More? Billions? When we look at a beautiful night sky, we have the impression we can see up to billions and billions of stars. the way you positioned Earth in its cluster of planets, its solar system. So how do we know what the Milky Way looks like if we're in the Milky Way? Well, first of all, we look at other galaxies outside our Milky Way and look at the variety of shapes uh, we can see. Yeah. So we can we see that there are different kinds of galaxies. Some have a, some are spiral galaxies. Some are spiral but with a bar at the center. We have some that looks more like a giant ball of uh, of stars, and some that have some irregular shapes. And the Milky Way and looks like a sort of a, a an egg, I think, with a yolk in the middle and sort of. Kind of. Yeah. So the yolk at the center is actually uh, the bar yeah. at the center of the spiral. Okay. So we have a big bar that is brighter and uh, has a yellow color like the yolk of an egg. Yeah. And it's uh, brighter. It has more stars, more gas. It's more luminous. And we can study the shape of the Milky Way by looking from Earth uh, inside the Milky Way. When we look at it in the sky, we see it like... Uh, edge on kind of so we're on the outside of the milky way looking no, in we're still inside we never send anything outside uh, yeah. the milky way we didn't even leave the solar system no. completely yet no so. <laughs> so how do we know what it looks like how do we so, know what the milky way looks like from the inside we take a look at what it, it looks like from earth so from inside the milky way yeah but with different kinds of telescopes and those different kinds of telescope they uh, they see different kinds of light. Oh. So some in the, the visible spectrum, like the different colors of the rainbow, yeah. and some in the infrared lights, in the, some in the X-ray light, in the ultraviolet. So with these different kinds of light, we can combine this information and try to model so, so we're, we we really just model to yes. estimate what the Milky Way looks like. Exactly. We've, we have no actual pictures no. of the Milky so, No, well, we have no actual pictures. So the okay. thing is that we take a look at the other galaxies. Yeah. And let's make an hypothesis. Let's say that, okay, I suppose that the Milky Way is elliptical. So like yeah. a, a big ellipse of stars. So that looks from the outside. Now, what will it look like from the inside? And that's then you make a computer simulation, and this isn't what it looks like in our sky. So that's not the right answer. And then we try with different shapes and different shapes. And every time we try a different shape, we get closer and closer to the real thing of what we see in the sky. And that's with using that logic that we can, uh, we can have a good idea of what the Milky Way looks like. And when did we come to this conclusion of the shape? In, uh, in the 1920s or 30s, it was uh, the astronomer Edwin Hubble that realized that the Milky Way, our galaxy, was not the whole universe. Wow. Before that, 
we thought that our galaxy was the whole thing. Yeah. And the, the bright spots we can see in the sky that are fuzzy, we thought they were nebula, but some of them were actually other galaxies too. Oh. And he found this uh, in the early uh, 900s. So we know that the universe is bigger than our own galaxy for like less than 100 years, which is... Uh. Whew, spectacular. That's, so that's some amazing math, eh, that yes. it took to get that answer. And mm -hmm. thank you for explaining that, because it's been You're bugging welcome. me for a while now. And I'm thinking, how do we know what it looks like? But that's, that's an excellent answer. Thank you. Great job today. You're welcome. My pleasure. Outdoor tips and tech. I don't know about you, but I find myself using GPS constantly when it comes to navigation, especially when I'm trying to get familiar with a new place. But even places that I am familiar with, I still find I'm checking that GPS pretty regularly. Here's the thing. Sometimes in your journeys, you may find yourself off grid. Then that GPS technology gets uh, pretty darn spotty. Environmental contributor Lawrence Gunther recently presented at the Accessible Parks conference on this issue joins us now to talk about this issue hey good morning lawrence good morning dave so lawrence set the scene for me here what are the limits of gps systems when it comes to orienting off grid on on grid with maps right you're on a sidewalk i mean they, no one names the sidewalk but the streets are all named so when you're walking along a sidewalk you know you're going in one direction or the other you're going forward or backwards you're not veering left or right off the sidewalk you're following the streets you know it's pretty simple to relocate yourself in the computer's mind you know next to a street so they know where you are all the time what's coming what's around you in terms of businesses addresses things like that it's all on the map take away the map and what you got is a GPS system that can tell you where you are now and where you just were. It can also tell you uh, what's around you if it's been waypointed, if there's GPS coordinates for certain things, certain features that are around you. But it can't necessarily tell you, you know, where, to, where they are in relation to you. That's where it starts to use artificial intelligence. And that's where it gets a little bit, uh, you have to start dialing it in a bit with the technology. And very few GPS systems do that well. So what's it going to take to start rolling out more of those waypoint markers and some of the more specific AI navigation on bicycle paths, walking paths, hiking trails and parks, etc. You need to have someone that can go to the path and create a series of waypoints. So on a map, it might look like a line. You see a path, you see a trail, uh, even, you know, a river, a shoreline. It, there's a line. It all looks linear. You know, it might flow. It might undulate a bit. But in GPS systems, it's a series of dots, like paint by numbers. You put a dot, you, you put another dot, you draw a line between the dots. That's how GPS works. You navigate from dot to dot, or what we call waypoints. Now, how many of those waypoints you need? It all depends on how many twirls and swirls that path takes, right? Or how many obstacles are along the way? How many things are around you that you need to know about? So, you know, creating a waypoint map 
it can be quite complicated if you're in a situation where there's lots of features on an open path and an open field on the water. Less so because you can create a, a waypoint and then if it's a line of sight, clear line of sight to the next one, you can say make the next waypoint, you know, 100 meters away, 200 meters away. You're just going in a straight line from point to point. Mm. But if there's a lot of things going on, yeah, it's a lot more complicated. So I think about the Google car that was so popular, say, about 10 years ago that would drive around and map cities. And that's largely how we got a lot of this mainstream, easy-to-access GPS tech, because a car with a bunch of sensors and cameras on it rolled up and down the streets. So why mm -hmm. couldn't we just put that technology on, like, a hiker or a biker on these trails? That's a really good question, and and it comes down to the limitations of GPS itself. There's two things that limit the quality of your GPS. One is, do you have a clear line of sight to at least three satellites above you? So if you're in a serious forest, right, with lots of giant trees overhead, you know, tree canopy, that can limit your GPS coverage. Just like if you're in a, a tunnel of high-rise buildings downtown, you know, you're you're limiting your GPS coverage. It's getting a little sketchy. Next thing you know, you're one street over. The other thing is. Just the sheer accuracy of GPS. If you want to really know exactly where you are, the elevation, the location, really pinpoint your location, you need a number of GPS uh, antennas. And then a computer that can take all the information from those GPS antennas and create a sort of a medium. So this one says this, this one says that. We pump it all into a computer. The average says this. So this is probably exactly where you are. With one antenna on one device, you could be 10 meters to the left of it, 10 meters to the right of it. Or what often happens is you're getting close to it and it says you've arrived, yeah. but you're still 10 meters <laughs> away, right? <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've been told I'm somewhere and I'm like, oh, I don't think I'm there. I don't, I don't think, uh, Penelope, you have not quite brought me exactly where I need to be. Uh, Lawrence, what about some alternatives for folks who do end up liking to spend time off grid, but a lot of this place, these places have not been mapped properly yet? Are there blended options available? Yeah, you know, if you think about what's on the ground itself, if you think about a path, paths have texture. It's like a sidewalk. You have a sidewalk with an edge. On one side, there might be grass or a building. On the other side, it might dip down a curb onto the pavement. So you have these textural indicators. Paths often work the same way, right? You know, you can have a path that's just a very well-grooved uh, trench into the uh, forest trail. You can have a raised path, like accessible paths, you know, where they apply gravel and level it all out. That's really useful. You, you can stay on the path with relative ease, uh, boardwalks, same idea, railings, ropes, all that works well. Um, tactile maps are a great idea, but you seldom see those being handed out just from the cost of producing those things. And I'm hoping, you know, three, uh, 3D printing and yeah, waterproof yeah. is going to fix that solution someday. But, you know, I'd love I, to have tactile maps of Lawrence, all my favorite lakes. Lawrence, I've been hearing the 3D printed map thing for like a decade now. They're like, oh yeah, yeah. we're right there. We've got the scale figured out. <laughs> and yet, yeah. like you just never see it necessarily in practice yet. Well, how much information can you put on there? And, and you start to add Braille or large print tactile, and, and, a, and a map can get huge real fast. Yeah, yeah, and then it's impractical to actually bring out while you're trying to, while you're trying to hike because one mm. of the primary rules of hiking is don't bring too much stuff. Yeah, a giant unfoldable map. <laughs> a giant unfoldable map. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Lawrence, so you had a chance to present at this Accessible Parks Conference. How did it go, and what did you present about when you were there? You go to a park, and everyone loves to go to the parks, but what's the main sort of little bit of anxiety, the thing that gives you some excitement, you know, when you go to a park? Anyway, bears. It, bears. 
<laughs> bears aside. Okay, bears, bears aside. Okay. <laughs> You you you, you want to go for a hike, right? You're, there's a path, there's a trail, there's a lake you want to uh, go fishing on or boating on, or maybe a river that you want to paddle on. You know, it's all about the adventure, the orientation, the uh, the you know the the hike, right? That's that's everyone wants to do that, whether it's your bike or on foot or on a canoe or whatever, paddleboard, kayak. It's it's that idea of going, starting somewhere and ending up somewhere, and that's so much fun. And, and there's a lot of information, signage, and and maps being created to make sure the average person can and can successfully do this without getting lost. That's what parks do, right? They give you enough information, just enough. They spend enough to make sure most people get to the end without having to call for help. Mm. But what does that look like for us, you know, with vision loss, deafblind, blind people? What could that look like? You know, Braille on sign, large print on sign, it's not great if you don't know where the sign is, right? Mm -hmm. and, you know, mm -hmm. So maybe we can work on... Uh, putting together a few of these ideas and creating a downloadable waypoint GPS trail that, you know, you know, in advance, that also includes, you know, the audio stuff that you get, get sometimes when you visit a park, you can get the audio machine with the headset and yeah, as yeah. you walk around it, GPS triggers and you say, Oh, you're now standing behind a, a beside a building that was built 250 years ago. Or, and it tells you about the building and, and that's a great thing. So if you take the combination of the, the tour and the information and that GPS, what's around you information and the waypoint information so you can get around with direction. So you say, you get, you get to this waypoint, now you have to progress in a certain direction, follow this, listen for that, give you information. Now, the, the, the whole issue with that is, there's liability, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. If you oh, yeah. <laughs> send a blind person into the Algonquin Forest with one of these, you know, audio described GPS waypoint systems, you know, that runs on 16 batteries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who's going to fish that guy out? I, you know? I, I think, like, there's certainly something you can do with re in regard to beacons as well. You know, we see some of that beacon technology that exists in yeah. places like malls or in public transit stations. I think there's probably a blended approach you can take, but certainly there's also a matter of personal responsibility that we want want the world to be completely accessible to us but there's other moments where it's like there are cliffs here <laughs> we don't want you necessarily <laughs> wandering off this cliff looking for a beacon yeah. right no, not to yeah. be demeaning to sort of the blind hiking experience but there, yeah. there has to be compromise made and lawrence not that i would ever necessarily say that uh, the united states and florida has anything figured out but i did take a tour of one of their national parks their everglade national park oh my goodness this it's almost 10 years ago now because time is a flat circle and just keeps yeah. on moving forward and they did a lot of things in regards to ease of movement through a path Pathway, but still making sure there was sort of not gigantic but appropriate fencing in regards to uh, not necessarily falling into an alligator pond, even though the alligators <laughs> were all over the trail. So as a blind person, uh, it was good to have a guide so you weren't walking right into an alligator sunbathing. Oh, yeah. Or you go to Yellowstone, right? And all those gurgling pits of, uh, of a sulfuric uh, 140 degrees Fahrenheit water. I mean, they just found a, a foot with a shoe that floated up from some unfortunate hiker that stepped off the boardwalk. And there's no railings there, right? It's yeah. just a boardwalk and then kerplunk, you're gone. Yeah, yeah. So definitely nature has its uh, has its dangers. There's no doubt about yeah. that. But uh, we're, we're allowed to take risks, right? Uh, I mean, we're grown up. Yeah, that's true. Did, did you enjoy the experience at the Accessible Parks Conference? 
it was super well organized, like very detailed. They had practice sessions. They pumped through a lot of presenters, huge presenter lists on lots of really interesting details around accessibility. And I really encouraged them to make those presentation links alive, not just, you know, a whole hour of four presenters, but, you know, break it down by presenter and organize it by theme. That would be a wonderful way to, for researchers to follow up on that wow, stuff. Wow, a little bit of a digital library advice from Lawrence Gunther. I'm doing some <laughs> archiving there. Hey, uh, Lawrence, thank you for this. <laughs>